41. I put the verse that will be kind of the verse that we're hopefully going to hone in on, but really we're looking at all of Psalm 41. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. He shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he'll not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, you set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've given us faith, given us the gift of repentance. And most of all, Lord, with that faith, that we can see our need of Christ and our Christ in the scripture. Help us, Lord, have keener sight tonight and keener hearing and deeper love, Lord, that we would um, find you, Jesus, here in the Bible, and we would increasingly love you by virtue of what we find. Uh, help us, Lord, grow in your word, be conformed into the image of the living word. May it redound to your glory, and even, Lord, to our own soul edification. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So the purpose all along in this particular series, and just as a I guess maybe a side note, if any of you would like to hear a particular Old Testament book preached, um, I'm all ears. I don't know whether I'll go any particular way, but if you would like a particular book and you're thinking of a particular Old Testament book, let me know, and then I'll kind of check my notes to see if I've preached it before. But we're pressing on with our particular series here. And our desire has been, for the past, I don't know what... um, seven, eight, nine sermons, our desire has been to find Christ in the Psalms. And in particular, what we're looking at are various statements about Jesus Christ that will tell us various aspects uh, about um, the Lord. And the Bible fundamentally is a book of redemptive history, salvific history. It's a book about the promise of the Savior coming to crush the head of the, 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 the serpent and the seed of the serpent uh, to liberate God's people. Um, and that's from Genesis 3.15 to the end of the Bible. And so the Bible fundamentally is about Christ. And so when we go to the Bible, we would be right to say, well, if we're in the book of Ezekiel, if we're in the book of uh, Daniel, any book, that we should be able to find Christ somewhere in that book. And that's what we've been keen to do And when we look at this book of redemptive history about Jesus, when we think about God the Father sending the Redeemer for sinners, 
He does so out of love. And so, do I know that God is a God of justice, God has wrath, God is holy, all of those things. It's all true. But when we, when we come here, even to the difficult things, we should literally bathe everything in the love of God. God the Father sends God the Son out of love. The Bible says, for God so loved sinners, the world, that he sent, the, the Son dies for us on the cross out of love. The Father sends him to die on the cross out of love. The Holy Spirit comes and applies him to us out of love. And I, I think it would be helpful for us. I think love is the great motive or motivator for human beings. It's the strongest motivator, in my opinion. And it would be helpful as we look at what Christ will undergo, his betrayal, which is the main focus of the sermon, the betrayal of Christ by a betrayer. Christ does this. He willingly submits to this betrayal out of love for the Father and out of love for his bride, out of love for us. And I, maybe in Reformed Christians, we, we don't focus enough on the love of God. We think, well, maybe that's kind of womanly or something like that. But the Bible is fairly clear. Um, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and verses 16, God is love, and it uses the abstract and not the concrete. God is love rather than God is loving. He is loving, but he is love. And I, I was studying that this afternoon. It's something almost beyond my full comprehension. Uh, if you ever read, there's a fellow, Octavius Winslow. He was a longtime a Baptist who at the end of his life became an Anglican. And he writes a, a little treatise called Our God. And he really extrapolates some things, particularly the love of God in Christ, which um, almost are beyond my pay grade. Let me read a couple of passages in Scripture that will show us that we are right to look for, to believe, and to look for Christ in every book of the Bible. So Luke chapter 24, Christ is on the road to Emmaus. He's been crucified. He was buried. He rose. He's on the road to Emmaus. There are a couple of two disciples. They're prevented supernaturally from discerning who Christ is. And Jesus says to them, they say, well, who are you? Do you not understand what's going on? And he says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then Jesus says these words. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus goes from Genesis to Malachi. He explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So Jesus Christ is the key to the scripture from Genesis to, to, to Revelation. So if we can't find Christ in the scriptures, we've missed the entire point of the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit inspires the apostle Peter this. In 1 Peter chapter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them. This is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ within the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is eternal God come in the flesh. There's eternality. Jesus has no, be as the second person of the Godhead, he has no beginning and he has no end was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. 
So when we are in the scriptures, we should pray and ask the Holy Spirit. This is 1 John chapter 2. He's the indwelling counselor. John 14, 15, and 16. He teaches us the word. So sometimes when I'm ministering to younger Christians, and maybe even chronologically younger Christians, but certainly kind of younger in the faith, particularly the younger chronological Christians, I have a kind of a easier access to them because I'm an older, to them older. And so I can just make suggestions without kind of infringing upon being a co-equal in age and some other things. Once folks get up in age, it's maybe a little bit harder to lead them in teaching. But with the younger ones, I can say, when you read the Bible, pray and ask God the Holy Spirit to show you Christ and what you're reading. That's a good practice. And so we, we are the verse that we're looking at or kind of using as a, a, a pole star is uh, verse 9 in chapter 41, uh, in, in, in Psalm 41. It's the whole business of the, of the person eating a meal with Christ, lifting up a heel against him. Jesus will take those words of King David, and he says in the book of John, chapter 13, these words are find their fulfillment in me, ultimately. Let me read that for us. So remember, we're looking at the Psalms, we see a statement about Christ, then we find a counterpart of that in the New Testament that that says this is Christ. John 13, verse 10. Jesus, you you remember this, this is is the foot washing passage. And Jesus says to Peter, all of you are clean but one, and I'm going to wash you. And Peter says, you're never going to wash me. And he says, if I don't wash you, I have no part in you. And then Peter says, wash my whole body. And he says, no, you're already clean. I'm just going to wash your feet. But one of you is not clean, meeting Judas. And that's what Jesus is going to get at here. Um, Jesus says, he was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So you have 12 apostles. Not all of you are clean. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So When he had washed their feet, taken his garments, reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? He just washed all of their feet. Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the teacher and the the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also follow as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one sent greater than one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all you. I know the ones I have chosen. Now here's going to be the fulfillment of Psalm 41, verse 9. Jesus says in John 13, verse 18, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And that's in reference to Judas. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. All of the scriptures are not only supposed to reveal Jesus Christ to us, but that they would induce us to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. So that passage of a person eating a meal with Christ, lifting up their heel against Christ, Christ says, that's happened to me. And the person that's betraying me is the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. But that was foretold in the time of David. And David lived somewhere circa uh, 1000, 1100 BC, something like that. What I want to do is before we deal with the betrayal of Christ by the betrayer, 
I want to look a little bit at some of the the surrounding things in Psalm 41. I want to look at how David is inspired to open up this particular psalm. He doesn't initially open up with a lamentation about the betrayal. He actually opens up with a benediction. A benediction is another way of saying a blessing. And so he says, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. And so he opens this prayer song. He actually closes it with a benediction as well in verses 11, 12, and 13. So he opens with a benediction. Then you have a confession of sin. Then you have a lamentation. And then he closes with a benediction or a blessing. And so he opens with this blessing. Now he blesses God. When you find in scripture a believer blessing God, there's a guy on the internet, he wears a shirt, um, bless God, meaning that we as believers should bless God. You do find various statements like that. Not a lot of them. David is blessing God. It sounds strange to us, especially if we cogitate on that a little bit, because when we think of man blessing God, we think, well, that's impossible. God is immutably, unchangeably perfect. You can't add or take away to God's perfection. He's infinitely blessed, unchangeably blessed, essentially blessed. Man can never bless God in that he can't add anything good to God, and that's true. Now, when God blesses man, everything that we have is derivative. So God is, for example, I mentioned God is love. God is love essentially. We have love and have the ability to love derivatively. So we have it from him and then we're able to give it out. But God has it essentially. So he's blessed in and of himself essentially. But we have any blessing that comes to us is derivatively. It has to be given to us. So when we say God blesses man, we can understand that. I'm sick, he makes me healthy. I'm dead in sins, he makes me alive in Christ. He blesses. When we find the statements, David blessing God or any other believer blessing God, David is a believer. And what that means is he knows God rightly, even in a limited sense. So sometimes we say, well, we can't know God. Well, you can't know God exhaustively, but you can know God rightly. Um, When we have been given saving faith by the Holy Spirit, we can know God rightly, limited in a limited way. We can know from creation by Holy Spirit wrought faith, and certainly by Scripture. We can know God rightly as He reveals Himself to us in a limited fashion, even notwithstanding the, the remaining flesh and the devil. We can know God rightly, but limitedly and as a creature. So when the believer blesses God, He's acknowledging by faith all of the various perfections of God. He's great. He's all wise. He's all powerful. He's kind. He's good. He's loving. That's how we bless God. It's the same way when we talk about bringing God glory. How could the creature bring the creator, who's immutably perfect, glory? by reflecting back what God already is. That's the sense of what David says, he is blessing God. He's just noting the perfection of God and that God is worthy to be praised. And the reason I think this is significant, because when we get to the betrayal part, the betrayal part is in a section of the psalm that deals with lamentations, which is a mournful song, a a song of affliction, heart sorrow, unburdening our heart, filled with sorrow to the Lord. 
But that's kind of sandwiched in the middle of a praise and a blessing, concluding with a praise and a blessing. And here's my point with that. This particular psalmist who has a heavy heart doesn't begin with a heavy heart. He begins with adoration of God and praise of God. And all of the Bible is written for our instruction. He's a man, David is a man like us. He has the similar afflictions that we have or we have like he has. And so when we are afflicted, we would do right. I'm not saying we have to do this in a, in a mechanical way. In, in other words, these are the only ways that you can pray rightly. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But it might help us to follow some of the schemes that we find in the Bible. When we're brokenhearted, sometimes we just fly into Christ's arm and say, I'm brokenhearted. And that is legitimate. But it may help our hearts before we get to our lamentation to begin by looking at God and extolling the goodness of God. Um, and just to begin with God before we get to the problem with man. And that's what we find here. That even though he is going to come around to the fact that he has wicked enemies, both open wicked enemies and what's worse, hidden wicked enemies, that's a fact. He begins with the great fact that he belongs to God and God belongs to him by covenant and he has an even greater God. And I'm preaching to myself when I say that. I need to learn the lessons of when I am in sorrow or pain with man, with this life, that I shouldn't forget the goodness of God and to praise God. It would, it would increase our faith, I, I, I think. So he begins not with the wicked enemy. He begins with God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. And even Christ does this. When Christ is at the when Christ is at the crescendo, the zenith of his suffering, when he's becoming a curse on the cross, even on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ is our representative. His eyes are always on the Father. His heart is always on the Father. Even while the wicked enemies, the strong bulls of Bashan, Psalms 22 and 69, they're surrounding the Lord Jesus. I think Christ's next to last words or words, last words are, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So Christ does what David does. Even though he has enemies, the thought is always on God. It's always Godward. Boy, that would be helpful for us. When we're in times of sorrow or opposition, it would be helpful to keep our eye fundamentally upon our our God. So that's how this psalm begins. And we learn a great many things by his beginning to get at this lamentation and to express his sorrow over the enemies, especially the betrayer. David is a believing man, as I've said. He's been gifted with the faith. And we, we learn something about faith. Faith is a gift of God. Human beings do not have it naturally. It's not something that we can conjure up. Um, I know there are theologians that kick around the idea of prevenient grace. It's kind of like a pre-faith, that if you fully grab it, then you get the full, full faith. And then you, it, it's a gift. It is a gift of God. I think the Holy Spirit uses, he, he works um, uh, immediately through the word. I think he works regeneration and gives us the gift of faith through preaching there are other theologians that William Shedd believed that he made us alive uh, immediately apart from preaching. And it was a very complex argument. And he's much smarter than I am, so maybe he's right. But I think he uses the word. 
And my point with that is this. The gift of faith fundamentally believes the word of God. And in all of the various things in the word of God, we respond accordingly. Faith can tremble at the threatenings of God's word, but primarily the great thing that faith can do is it can receive. It believes and and receives the promises of salvation in Christ Jesus. That's what it can do. It It believes, it rests and receives upon Christ all of the promises Um, notwithstanding everything else that we can see. And in relationship to what we're considering, looking to God in the face of betrayers and enemies, and then how he begins with God and praises God, he ends by looking to God and praising God. The Bible says in uh, 1 John chapter 4, our faith overcomes the world, but our faith overcomes our flesh, our faith overcomes the devil, the enemy of our flesh, um, our faith overcomes the worldling, those people that are governed by the devil. Our faith can see God and pluck the goodness of God out of hard and bitter times. And people that don't have faith don't have that ability. Again, it's not a natural ability, it's a supernatural ability. So David has the ability by faith to still consider that God is good and that God is doing good and that all of what's going on in David's life is an expression of God's love to David, even in the face of enemies. If you don't have saving faith in Jesus Christ, then all you conclude is bad things should not be happening to me and that means that God is not really good to me. But that's not how the believer um, reasons. The believer can see the goodness of God even through afflictions. And so even in the bitterest, what is it, Samuel Rutherford in prison. Samuel Rutherford was an English Puritan, 1600s, and they put him in prison for preaching the gospel. And Samuel Rutherford said, when I'm in the cellar of afflictions, now remember he writes from a dungeon, he goes, I always look for, for God's choicest wines in the dungeon. That's David. He learns the sweetness of God when he's in just this pit of affliction and suffering from enemies open and secret. And he can do that. He can do that because he's a spiritual man. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. We're born again. God the Holy Spirit has made us alive. He's given us spiritual sight and hearing and, and a heart to embrace Jesus. The natural man looks at this and they cannot see the goodness of God in, in hard times. There have been many writers that have written, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the, the smile of God be, behind frowning, frowning providences. That's what we're looking at here. I want to give us a couple of quotes on the business of affliction and how, how Christ can, can, how our faith in Jesus can pluck goodness out of even painful providences. Um, Let me give you one from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this is what's going on with David. We must allow tribulations to teach us things which nothing but tribulation would probably ever teach us. I want to read that again. We must allow tribulations 
to teach us things which nothing but tribulation would probably ever teach us. That's David. And the Bible says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, deeply mysterious statement, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, the son learned obedience through what? Suffering. Let me read you another quote, this time by William Bridge. I'm reading a book by William Bridge on the lifting up of the downcast. It's an exposition of Psalm 42. He says this, Affliction for the saints is God's soap. Before a godly man goes into afflictions, his very graces are mixed with sin. His faith is mixed and dirtied with unbelief and doubting. His His humility mixed with pride his zeal mixed with lukewarmness. But now by his tribulation, his garments and robe are made white and washed, and he shall be of a more royal spirit. That's what's going on. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can pluck goodness out of even hard times. That's what David is doing. And so David extols God for his goodness, and then he relies God preemptively as his helper. So not only do we know that God is and that God is good and we're able to pluck sweetness out of bitterness, fundamentally what we're doing by faith is acknowledging that we have God as our helper. Man is our enemy and ultimately behind man as Christians and for David as a believer, it's the devil. But he acknowledges, but God is my helper. And you remember Psalm 121, we lift up, my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come my help comes from the lord who made the heaven the earth he will not allow our foot to slip 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 he who keeps you will not slumber the lord is your keeper it's a it's a finding of of our god as our helper and and here's what we're looking at in psalm 41 look at verses 1 2 and 3 i want you to look in your bible How many times God the Holy Spirit inspires David to say, the Lord will, the Lord will. A Psalm of David, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. Verse two, the Lord will protect him and keep him alive. He shall shall be called blessed. Verse three, and the Lord will sustain him and so on and so on. Christianity is not therapy, and Christianity is not about bootstraps theology. It's not about you can do it and rely upon yourself, and you need to grow a spine, and you can do it. And, and I, I know that man has responsible. I know we're responsible. I know all of that. I know we're responsible to get up and brush our teeth and go to work. I know all that. Christianity does not teach us to to ultimately rely upon ourselves. It just doesn't. The guys on the podcast and everything that yell at guys, go for a run, eat, lift weights, be a man, you, you, you. Maybe it's good to have like muscles and and run and be a tough guy. Maybe it's good to, to be, but not for getting to heaven. It's not you, do, you, do. David, I think he's tougher than those tough guys. He said the Lord will. The Lord will, the Lord will, the Lord will. Before the enemies that we have, you could be the toughest guy on the planet. 
you're going to wilt like a little woman or like a, like a little kid. You're going to wilt. And so when we face our enemies, it has to be the Lord will. The Lord will sustain me. The Lord will take care of this. And I don't, again, I don't mean like, ah, well, God will take care of it. We're just going just gonna to go to the beach. God will take care of it. But we, we have to, by faith, unburden the burdens that we carry, the fears that we carry for all of the fearful things and say, the Lord, the Lord will sustain me. Because he promised. And so he promises. And David is merely trusting in the promises of God regarding his enemies and his betrayer. So now we come to the middle section of the psalm from 5 to 9, in which Jesus quotes verse 9. And I mentioned that this is a lamentation. There are lamentations in the Bible. And lamentations are like, they're sung certainly in a minor key. This is a minor key prayer song. And this is the heart of a believer who unburdens their heart of sorrow. This is a song that you sing weeping. But I want you to see something. He opens with joy in the Lord. And then he moves a few verses later with a song of sorrow. Beloved, those things are not mutually exclusive. And so sometimes you see, I guess, well-meaning Christians, but I I don't know how well-meaning they are. Sometimes Christians who are not in pain and they're not very introspective and they're not very empathetic, it means they're self-centered, they're doing well in life. And they come to another Christian that is just weeping. And they are in some kind of crucible. Count it all joy. They quote James chapter 1. Got to count it all joy. Just count it all joy. And you, you want to just, not in, an, in a bad way, but you want to, <laughs> what is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Did God not pass any empathy out? And so they say, well, can't you read James? We want to say to them, can't you see the Bible? There is this tension in the believer. They have joy in the Lord. But at the very same time, they have sorrow in man. That's what happens. So so, so the other person says, we're just supposed to walk around. We're just happy as larks. Joy, joy, joy. And I'm not for being sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. But I find that not real. I don't find that to be a mature Christian. I don't find it to be a thinking Christian. I don't find it to be a serviceable Christian. You're faking it. You're not used to people. You're, you're going to be of no, no use. So I'm not impressed when people do that. It shows me that they're not thinking. Look around. Everyone's in pain. What's your problem? But, but here David says, I have joy in the Lord, but I have sorrow with man. Do you, do you see the difference? So those things are not mutually... We can have joy in Jesus Christ while we're crying over our sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters, over our broken bodies, over our broken relationships. Does that make sense? And that's what's going on here. And can I fully reconcile it? No, but but we see it. And I want to say, say something else. In this lamentation, which is a song of sorrow, beloved, I'll just reference it. It's John chapter 16, towards the end. Jesus says, in this life for a believer, we will have much what? He says, much, much. Sorrow, trouble, difficulty. But then he says, take cheer, take courage. I've overcome the world. 
So, so, so the method for the Christian when we're being opposed or having enemies or hated or we're sick or we're in pain is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to deny the other. And Jesus says, in this life you'll have much of this. The Apostle Paul in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 14 says, around about verse 20, 22, we must go, in order to get to heaven, we must go through what? Many troubles, many tribulations, in Thessalonians, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will be opposed. And I'm going to say this. Especially to Christians. If you know Christians that are like this, they believe in keeping with their theology, and just an aspect of their theology, that in their theology, which I think is incorrect, that the Christian life should not contain sorrow. And that God, as a heavenly Father, never wants us to be in sorrow. Certain theologies teach this. I don't. I'm not sympathetic with it. But when you have Christian family and friends like that, they're incessantly chasing a Christian experience that has no pain and no tears, and only one of joy and pleasure. And I don't mean like in a sinful sexual pleasure. I mean they think biblically that life should be much more pleasant. And I'm going to say this, beloved. If you expect from something from God that he doesn't promise, if you're wrong, you're going to be miserable. And you're going to be angry at God. And you're going to be miserable, you're going to be bitter at God because you're thinking that God is not giving you something that he's promised. And I'm going to say something else. And you're going to discourage all the people around you. Because as you're angry with your life because you have pain in your life and you think you're not supposed to, and you're angry with your God because you have pain in your life and you think you're not supposed to, you're going to discourage people around you with the expression of anger and grumbling. And so I have friends that are incessantly chasing a sorrowless Christianity. And I told my friend last week, you need to embrace the pain. You need to embrace the sorrow. God the Father allotted to the Son. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 29, it has been gifted to you, granted to you, to believe in his name. And what's the next sentence? It has not only been gifted to us to believe in Christ, but it has been gifted to us to do what? To suffer for him. So I wasn't saying this to, to, to drive my friend into despair, but chasing happiness, perfect happiness, and running from sorrow when God has never promised that, that's an idol and you're going to be miserable. And so we, we can hold both of those things in tension. We can have joy in the Lord while we have sorrow with man. And, 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 and then in the lamentation, the Holy Spirit is inspiring David to reveal two sources of his lamentation. Earlier he talks about his sickness, and I'll just say as an aside, sometimes our, our, sometimes our sorrow before the Lord can be more physiological, and I include even our thinking and emotions with the physiological, and it may have nothing to do with our direct sin. I'm not talking about sin being in the world, but it, it, our sorrow before God may not have to do with our breach of any of the Ten Commandments, it may be physiological. We may be sick. If I make you sick, chronically sick for a long time, 
you're going to be a broken-hearted person. And so we can unburden ourselves in that way. But when he gets to the lamentation, he's not talking about his sickness. He's talking about enemies. And what we're learning here is, here we have David. He is the, the, the type of Christ. He's a man after God's own heart. And he says, and people hate me. They hate me because he loves God. They hate, me because, they hate him because he stands for God. And so obviously, when we think of an enemy, this is kind of along the lines of a warfare. Only one side will prevail. One side wants to destroy the other side. And obviously, we know the enemy behind David is behind the one that comes from King David's loins. Is the enemy of, he's the enemy of Christ. And so there's this real spiritual warfare. Um, When we look around at our poor country, at the poor world, it's not, it, it, it's not uh, ultimately what is Putin doing or, or um, the, 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 the minister in China. It's not those folks. It's not this. It's not even what's going to go on politically pretty quick here. It's not that. that, that that's the great problem. The great problem is there is a spiritual warfare in the heavenlies. There are fallen angels, and, and then on the earth there are fallen men, and they're, they're enemies of God, and they're enemies of God in Christ, and they're enemies of God's people. And the response of God's people, it, we, we take it to God. We unburden our heart to God. We let God deal with the vengeance. I said this morning... The Christians are never to convert people with a sword. We're not Islam. And when I look at the Crusades, and I know there are books that are pro-Crusade, it was a self-defense, it was a just war. I don't know anything about that. And if it was a just war, it was a just war. But I, I don't know. We are lambs. We're doves. I'm not saying that you can't be in the military. I'm not saying you can't be a policeman. Then, then you're part of the state, and the state wields the sword. But the church doesn't wield the sword. And when we have personal enemies that hate us for Christ's sake, our recourse is not to hurt them. Our recourse is to go to God in lamentation. You say, well, what about being tough? And, and, and... No. Lord God, you, Lord God, convert them or, or, or stop them. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and he commits his heart to God. And, and so we have open enemies. And what Jesus is getting at, and what David is getting at, is he has painful open enemies. These are the people who say, I hate you to Jesus Christ. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. If you have family members that are Hindus, Buddhists, uh, atheists, all of these other things, they will tell you to your face, I don't believe in Jesus. Beloved, they're enemies of the Lord Jesus. You're either on Christ's side or against Christ's side. But I will say this. An open enemy of Christ into the Christian is less painful than what Christ is getting at and what David is getting at. Even my own companion that ate bread with me, he lifted up his heel to be like a wayward horse or a wayward mule to stomp on the owner that fed him his, his fodder. And obviously, Christ is referring to Judas and David was actually referring to what's called, the, he's, the fellow is the Old Testament uh, Judas. Have you ever heard of this? The Old Testament Judas? His name is Ahithophel. I'll probably butch the name, but his name is Ahithophel. Second Samuel, 
Oh, I used to know the chapters. It'll come to me late in the morning, but it's in 2 Samuel. Ahithophel was an advisor to King David, and he actually advised Absalom, the son of David, to try to kill David and take the throne. And so that's what David is getting at. This man, Ahithophel, ate with me, and now he's, a, he's counseled my own son to kill me. He's a traitor. Now, as sad as that may sound, there have been occasions, I hate to say this because it's King David and he's a, a man of God's own heart. There have been occasions when I've wrongfully thought this, but I'm just telling you that I've wrongfully thought this, that I sided with Ahithophel. And I thought, if I was Ahithophel, I know why Ahithophel did what he did against David. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so here is David. I think he raped her. You, you abused my granddaughter and you murdered her, her, um, her, her husband and I'm going to get you. He should never have done that because he took vengeance into his own hand and it wasn't due him. And David was the Lord's Mashiach, his anointed. But the Old Testament Ahithophel was not like the New Testament Ahithophel Judas. Jesus Christ gave Judas no cause. Whereas I would argue David gave Ahithophel a boatload of cause. But he, he shouldn't have done what he did. But so when you come to that narrative and you think, why did Ahithophel do what he did? Now, yeah, I'll just leave Ahithophel alone. But now we're coming to Judas. So the thing with a betrayer is a, is a betrayer is a person that betrays, um, that goes against a, a position of trust. They have a position of friendship, even kinship. That here, you ate my bread, you sat down. This is the oriental uh, uh, custom of, of hospitality. It denotes like a oneship, a kinship, that you're my brother, you're my sister. You ate bread with me, and you repaid my good to you with evil to me. And so it's like being a traitor. Or So we, we say if the Germans were fighting uh, the English are fighting the Americans and they, were, they wore different uniforms and they were enemy to enemy. But it's like being a Benedict Arnold. You say that you're fighting for the colonials and you're really fighting for the British. It's worse. You're, 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 you're committing treachery. You're a quisling, I think is the term from World War II, who was the Dutchman that um, did an act of treachery for his uh, village to, to, the, um, to the Nazis. So these are hidden... These are hidden enemies. And some synonyms dealing with betrayal, it's um, a violation of trust, dishonesty, a sellout, um, treachery, treason, double-cross, trickery, duplicitousness. That's what Judas is doing. And so David apl Jesus applies David's words to Judas, and he is that particular man that has betrayed Christ's trust. There are a couple of Judases in the Bible, and when Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, is mentioned, it's Judas Iscariot. And um, he's always referred to, or most always, excuse me, there are a couple of places where he's not referred to. He's most always referred to as the betrayer. Matthew 10, 14, Simon the Zealot, he's the nationalist, um, and, he, and he's converted. And Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, um, Matthew 26, being deeply grieved, that each one began to say to him, after Jesus says, one of you will betray me at the Last Supper, 
Jesus, and then they all say, not, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dips his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man never to have been born. And Judas, who was betraying to him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. And how does Judas betray the Lord Jesus Christ? With what? With a kiss. He leads the, the, the temple soldiers and the soldiers and the police to come to Christ with swords and clubs. And he greets Jesus with a kiss. He sells the Lord of glory as a pretend friend for 30 pieces of silver, one month's wage. How much do you make in one month? Would you sell Jesus Christ for what you make in one month? He sells Christ for one month's pay and he does it with a kiss. And Jesus Christ uses this. He ate bread with me. I gave him the last supper, the Passover meal. And he betrayed me. I gave him good, and this is how he pays me back. Beloved, these things happen to Christ. We will have false friends. We'll have open enemies, and we'll have false friends who are real enemies of ours for Christ's sake. And the recourse, as was said all along, is to the Lord. I, I want you to notice something, because Christ omits something from Psalm 41, verse 9, in, in John 13. In Psalm 41, verse 9, he says, Even my close friend in whom I have trusted. Christ doesn't use that. Judas Iscariot was never a close friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought him in the fold to teach us other things. But Jesus Christ never trusted uh, entrusted himself to Judas Iscariot because he knew that he was the son of perdition. He knew he was the betrayer from the very beginning. And I'm going to say... There is a time coming when Jesus Christ will no longer permit any false friends to be in his kingdom. And he'll cast them out and they'll go to their own place. And then Christ, David and Christ, David does not end this song with a lamentation. He returns back to the praise of God. God will save me. God will vindicate me. Blessed be the name of God. Beloved, we, 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 we may have all of these hard times. What this text is teaching us, this psalm is teaching us, even with the, the hardest times, the severest affliction, even with these betrayals, the end of our life will be everlasting joy on our heads because of this one. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word. Amen.